Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. I'm Jan Weil with Living Word Ministries, filling in for Debbie Blank. And we're happy to have you joining us for this exciting study in the book of 2 Thessalonians. In our last broadcast, we learned the reason Paul wrote the second letter to the new church of Thessalonica. False teaching was spreading rampantly, making this church think they had missed the rapture and that the day of the Lord had already come upon them. So now as we dig into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we learn what Paul told them has to happen before the day of the Lord comes. How comforting this letter must have been to this new church. It's also comforting for us today to know what sequence of events comes next and how to protect ourselves against false teaching. I'm Jan Weil, filling in for Debbie Blank. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. What did the brand new Thessalonian believers learn from Paul in their first three weeks that many seasoned Christians of today still know little or nothing about? Next to the gospel itself, it seems Paul believed the imminent coming of Jesus to catch believers up to be with him in the air was of primary importance. But it didn't take long for the purveyors of fake news to confuse the issue. So Paul writes two letters to the Thessalonians reinforcing the concept of the rapture or catching away to reassure the frightened believers that they had not missed it. Today we'll see the two signs Paul gives them to prove they had not missed the rapture. Signs to recognize, to know if we are now living in the time of the tribulation. If you've ever wondered about whether the increasing distress of today's world is the beginning of the tribulation period, stay tuned. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul doesn't waste any time. He dives right into the issue at hand, confronting the false teaching and speaking truth. But before we dive in, let's make sure we understand what is meant by the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not referring to a 24-hour day, but a period of time which can encompass the judgments of God from the seven-year tribulation through the great white throne judgment, which will occur at the end of the millennial reign of Jesus on this earth. Normally, when we see the day of the Lord, it's referring to a specific period of God's judgment. In the context of this letter, Paul is focusing in on the seven-year tribulation period, during which Jesus unleashes the wrath of God on the whole earth in the form of seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and seven bowl judgments. Now, some say the entire seven-year tribulation is not the wrath of God, but that doesn't actually match Scripture. Revelation 6, 16 and 17, in the description of the first set of judgments, the seal judgments, make it clear even this beginning set of judgments is the wrath of God. So as we dive into this chapter, we'll immediately see the context is the rapture and the seven-year tribulation. And it's so important whenever we study the Bible to know that context is king. That's how we understand. Well, let's start by examining the first four verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit 
or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you for it, meaning the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. When we talk about context, it's so important to know what that it means because I think people get confused when they read that. So what, again, does the it mean? Many people, if they just gloss over that, might think that it means the rapture. But as we look at it in context, the word it is clearly referring to the day of the Lord. As we saw in chapter 1, Paul, in just three weeks of establishing this church in Thessalonica, taught them about the rapture and the day of the Lord. Now he's giving them more details about both of these future events. Today, most churches avoid these topics, like the plague. Yet Paul thought they were important enough that these new believers needed to learn about them in their first three weeks of becoming a Christian. In verse 1, when Paul says, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, what's he talking about? He's specifically talking about the rapture of the followers of Jesus, which he described in detail in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18. Note that he's not talking about Jesus' second coming. At the rapture, we meet the Lord Jesus in the air. At Jesus' second coming, when he returns to this earth at the end of the tribulation, described in Revelation 19, his followers are returning with him. So that's how it explains how those followers, those believers are already with him. So at the rapture, Jesus comes for his believers And at the end of the tribulation, he comes with them. In verse 2, we see the Thessalonian believers were shaken and disturbed by this false teaching. What does verse 2 tell us made them believe they missed the rapture? Paul refers to a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. Word was spreading among them that Paul said the day of the Lord had already come. I read this, I'm wondering who's going around spreading that false information. Who's trying to disturb the church? There were philosophers going around, and they were upset at all the attention that Paul was getting. So they started trying to badmouth him and say, well, Paul said this, Paul said that, to try to get the attention themselves. And it wasn't true. And so when Timothy brought news back of the fury that was going on in the church at Thessalonica and their fear Paul wrote this letter to clarify these things. And we'll see at the end that he even penned it with, he even marked it with his own hand to make sure they knew that it was the truth and it was clearly from him. So these new believers looked around at the trials and persecution they were facing and thought, oh my gosh, they're right. We did miss the rapture. The day of the Lord has come. So in this first passage, Paul assures them and then explains why they can't be in the seven-year tribulations, the day of the Lord. Now, we request you, brethren, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed. Then he continues on basically saying, there's no way you missed the rapture, guys, because here's what will happen right after the rapture. So we could title this passage, here's how we can know for sure we haven't missed the rapture. Verse three says, let no one in any way deceive you. What does that tell you? 
the Thessalonian Christians were being deceived, and people are still being deceived today. Well, it makes me think right away of Matthew 24 and how Jesus tells them as he's describing birth pangs in the end times, do not be deceived. See to it that no one deceives you. And then as we go through Matthew 24, we see about four times, I think, that he brings up the warning to not be deceived. And the Thessalonians were being deceived because they weren't yet grounded in the truth of God's word. They've only been Christians for a very short time. So anyone could come up and say, well, Paul said, without them having the armor to protect themselves and the knowledge to to parse out and understand what is true. But in our time today, we have God's word, which we can use to protect ourselves from false teaching like this. However, it will only protect us if we're spending time in it and testing all teaching against it. You know, the Bible says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So Paul is about to set them free from the effects of this false teaching. And, you know, we think about there's so much deception and fear today because there's so much Bible illiteracy, even among Christians. So we have his word at our fingertips. We need to use it. Absolutely. Well, then verse three goes on to say, for it will not come. Again, the it is referring to the day of the Lord, God's period of judgment on this earth. We know this because Paul just gave us the context in the previous verse. Let's just glance at that again, verses two and three, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. So by the context, we see Paul is focusing in on the beginning of the day of the Lord, the seven-year tribulation. That's the period of judgment that he's talking about. Verse 3 says, the day of the Lord will not come until two specific signs occur. The first is the apostasy comes first before the day of the Lord. And then it says the man of lawlessness is revealed with the coming of the day of the Lord. So let's first understand what's meant by apostasy. Apostasy or apostasia in the Greek means defection or falling away from the truth. Before the seven-year tribulation begins, the apostasy will come. That means from now until the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, the number of true Bible-believing Christians will continue to decrease drastically. And isn't that exactly what we're seeing today? I know that Debbie likes to look at Barna polls, and she does that quite frequently, and we continue to see the number of Christians decreasing. More and more people are falling away from the truth and accepting the doctrine of relativism, which means knowledge, truth, and morality only exist in relation to the culture, society, or historical content and are not absolute. So many of the churches are changing with the culture. What's interesting and kind of shocking about that is some of them admit that that's why they're changing, you know, that they need to change with the times. Isn't that just unbelievable? A July 2022 Gallup poll shows just 20% of Americans believe the Bible is the actual word of God. And 49% now believe the Bible is just a collection of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. That's a measurable sign of apostasy. Yes, it sure is. What will it look like when the number of Americans who believe the Bible is the actual word of God goes down to 15%? 
How far will God let that number go down before he raptures his followers and unleashes his wrath? We don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if it will still get quite a bit worse before the rapture for two reasons. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is patient toward us, not wishing for any to perish. He wants to give more time for any who are going to come to faith. And then Matthew 28, 19 through 20, he's calling us to share with those who don't believe, and we're not up sharing. So as we see those numbers continue to go down, God is using that apostasy to get us to wake up and see the need all around us. The number of people close to us who desperately need to hear about Jesus' love for them. But verse 3 also tells us the day of the Lord will not come until the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Who is that referring to? The Antichrist. Yes. So then we want to know, is there scripture that tells us when the Antichrist will be revealed? And the answer to that is yes. When we look at Daniel 9, 27 and Revelation 6, 1 and 2, we see the Antichrist will be revealed at the kickoff of the seven-year tribulation. That's the beginning event of the day of the Lord. Let's take a quick look at those verses. Daniel 9, 27 says, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, that's seven years, But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And then Revelation 6, 1 and 2 says, Then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come, I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went on conquering and to conquer. Note that this is the first of seven seals, which kicks off the seven-year tribulation. The Antichrist is revealed as he makes a firm seven-year covenant with the Jews, which allows them to resume sacrifice and grain offerings, which likely means there will be a third temple on the Temple Mount at this time. Revelation 6-2 says, he'll have a bow to conquer, but no arrows are mentioned. That points to conquering with diplomacy. Today we see an increase in apostasy, but the Antichrist has not been revealed yet. So if anyone tells you the tribulation has already happened, We know from this scripture that is not correct. If someone says the rapture, the seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist are all just a symbolic depiction of good versus evil, we know that is not correct. Because Jesus told us in Revelation 1.1 that the purpose of Revelation was to show Jesus' followers the things which must soon take place. So it's not symbolic. It's not past. It's not current. It's still future to our time today. Exactly. In verse 4, Paul tells us what the Antichrist will do. He will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Are we told anywhere in Scripture when the Antichrist will do these things? Since verses 3 and 4 are one sentence, our natural assumption would be that these events happen together. But this is typical Hebrew thought, telling us about the Antichrist and the things he'll do without giving us a time frame of when each of these events will take place. Hebrew thought describes a person and events more in illustration or storyboard form. It's not about a time frame. Greek thought which is how we process information, is chronological. 
we describe events in the order that they happen and normally tell how much time is between each event. So then when we read the Bible, we expect chronological order and events to happen one right after another. But that's not how Hebrew thought works. As we cross-reference scripture, we can see the time frame. In Daniel 9.27, we're told the Antichrist will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, seven years. But in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. So the covenant is the kickoff event of the seven-year tribulation, the first seal described in Revelation 6, 1 through 2. I like that term, kickoff of the tribulation. That helps me picture that in my mind better. It's at that point that the Antichrist will be revealed. But it's not until three and a half years later, at the middle of the seven-year tribulation, that he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings and demand that everyone worship him. We see this in Revelation 13, 12, where it says, He, the false prophet, makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast, the Antichrist. So the Antichrist will be revealed at the beginning of the tribulation in the first seal judgment. Yeah, but his true nature, which is described in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, will not be shown until the middle of the seven-year tribulation when he starts persecuting the Jews. Notice what verse 4 tells us about the temple of God. During the seven-year tribulation, there has to be a third temple on the Temple Mount for the Antichrist to take a seat in. The Jews believe they can't resume sacrifices until the third temple is built with an altar for sacrifice. Let's look at this next passage, verses 5 through 8, and learn more about the Antichrist and why he hasn't been revealed yet. Verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. In verse 5, Paul reminds them that while he was with them, he taught them all of these things. What things? Well, the rapture, the day of the Lord, and the revealing of the Antichrist. Exactly. Paul didn't regard end times prophecy as too deep, unimportant, or controversial for these brand new Christians. He believed it was essential to their understanding of the whole counsel of God. 12 to 15% of which is end times prophecy, which still remains to be fulfilled today. So Paul taught it without hesitation or apology. In verse 6 and 7, Paul tells us someone is currently restraining the Antichrist from coming. Who is that restrainer? Well, there's actually several different opinions on this. Some say it's the Roman Empire restraining the Antichrist, but the Roman Empire is not in position to hold back the Antichrist at this point in time. Some say it's Satan restraining the Antichrist, but Satan has been trying to unleash sin and evil for centuries, not hold it back. Some say it's human governments restraining the Antichrist, but human governments will still be in place when the Antichrist is revealed, and they certainly don't seem to want to restrain it. Well, they're actually part of the problem. They're going to be part of the one world system. The only one powerful enough to restrain the Antichrist is God. And that makes so much sense here. 
God the Holy Spirit resides within the followers of Jesus. The moment we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus as the Lord of our lives, the Holy Spirit indwells us and works through us to restrain the Antichrist. However, the Holy Spirit is only taken out of the way in the sense that believers who he has sealed are raptured. The Holy Spirit seals us until we are redeemed. That redemption happens at the rapture. God, the Holy Spirit, can't be taken out of the way. He's God. The phrase, until the restrainer is taken out of the way, is actually a word picture, Hebrew thought, of the rapture of the followers of Jesus. We have to remember Hebrew thought is all about word pictures. In verse 7, Paul says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Matthew 24, 12, Jesus said, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Are we seeing lawlessness increase today? Oh, absolutely. I think everybody I know feels that way. And, you know, what's making it worse is that our leaders are also lawless. So when your leaders are lawless, that just spreads to the rest of the country. So the standard is lawlessness. There's absolutely no denying the spirit of lawlessness at work in our world today. As we see this, we need to remember this is a birth pain of what Jesus said would happen during the seven-year tribulation when lawlessness will not just be increased but ruling. Verse 8 starts off with a time phrase, then. What does verse 8 tell us will happen after the restrainer is taken out of the way? Then the lawless one will be revealed. Yes. When will he be revealed? Well, Daniel 9.27, when he makes the seven-year covenant with Israel that allows them to resume sacrifice and grain offerings, which is also the first sealed judgment of the seven-year tribulation described in Revelation 6, 1-2. Looking at verse 8 again, when will the Lord slay the lawless one, the Antichrist, with the breath of his mouth? At the end of the seven-year tribulation, At the second coming, when the Lord returns to this earth and defeats the Antichrist, the false prophet, and their armies. In verse 8 here, Paul is actually giving us a high-level snapshot of the entire seven-year tribulation. At the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, the lawless one will be revealed. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, Jesus returns with his followers, as you had said, Jackie, the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire. In verse 8, when Paul says, the Lord will slay the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth, what does he mean? Armageddon is not going to be some big battle between good and evil. Jesus will just defeat them with his word. He'll speak and it will be done. At creation, God spoke everything into existence. Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. We see in Genesis, absolutely everything was created as God spoke. Likewise, in Revelation 19, we see that evil is defeated by God in the person of Jesus when he uses the sword of his mouth. You know, this reminds me of that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. One part of it states, His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And out of his great love... He gives us this assurance and understanding ahead of time. So as we see these things happening in our world today, rather than wondering why, we should be saying, wow, this prophecy is being fulfilled. Thank you, Lord, for letting me understand this. This is what God's word says will happen at the end before Jesus returns. 
That means we need to be leaning into him, staying in his word, and sharing with others. In this next passage, Paul continues to give us a unique details about this future Antichrist. Let's look at verses 8 through 12. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Verse 9 tells us the Antichrist will show great power, signs, and false wonders which will deceive people. And when we look at these words and really understand power means miraculous power, signs are miracles done specifically to confirm and exalt the one doing it. False wonders are miraculous wonders done to elicit reaction from onlookers. We clearly see the Antichrist will perform these signs to convince people he's God and worthy of worship as people buy into it hook, line, and sinker. And then according to verse 10, people will fall for this deception because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved. This is talking about those who heard the gospel but refused to receive it. They never repented of their sins and made Jesus their Savior and the Lord of their lives. They had a choice, but they rejected him because they wanted to be in control. When you look around, do you scratch your head in disbelief, not understanding how people could possibly be falling for all the deception and manipulation going on right now? God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. That's the only thing that makes sense to me as to how people could be buying into some of the things we're seeing today that are so far against God. But here's what's reassuring. Jesus told us these birth pains would come. Now, this last point in verse 11 and 12 is difficult to hear. God sends upon them a deluding influence so they'll believe what is false in order that they all may be judged. Okay, our knee-jerk reaction to that might be, why would a loving God do that? And the answer is because God knows when someone has hardened their heart against him over and over to the point that they're never going to make the choice to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus, both as their Savior and as their Lord. So at that point, he sends a deluding influence on them to believe the lie. At that point, where people have forever hardened their hearts against God, he gives them over to the evil that they want so they may be judged. But whenever we see God giving someone over to evil, we should remember 2 Peter 3, 9, which says, God is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Exactly. It's interesting to me that most people want to skip over all the books and passages of Scripture that teach us about end times prophecy. Just as Paul educated and equipped the Thessalonian church, we need to be educated even more so today. The Thessalonians were being discouraged and confused by false teaching. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 11, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. That's why throughout the New Testament, we keep seeing the repeated message, do not be deceived. We can't skip the parts of the Bible that tell us about what's going to happen in the end times and not be deceived. 
We need to lean into Jesus. We need to know his word. We also need to be sharing God's message of love and salvation with those who are close to us and far from God while there's still time. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.